Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us so that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples with fairness and lead the nations on earth. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth will fear him. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for being here with us today. As Joe reminded us and asked us to remind ourselves, we thank you that you are a God with an impulse to go out and bless. Lord, we need blessing. And I pray that we would hear the good news of your blessing today as you've given it to us through Psalm 67. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 67 is, I think the theological term for it is a stinking cool psalm. Um, it, it's really great. I mean, you, you hear these words about God being gracious and God blessing us and the nations being glad and rejoicing. And you look around and you realize this may be a word that we need. Maybe you feel that. We're living right now in a time of major change. And the way that we think about things like truth, morality, family norms, the nature of personal identity, some very fundamental things have shifted fundamentally during my lifetime. I've got grays, but I'm not that old. We've seen a lot of really fast movement in really significant ways. And in many ways, we live in a time in which the most major assumptions that our culture stands on to do its most important and most everyday thinking have become opposed to the doctrine of scripture. And so if this is true, what do we do with that if we believe scripture? Living in a time like this can make the world seem like a danger and a threat. I don't know if you've noticed that in Christian communities and Christian speakers, groups of Christians. It can make the world seem like a danger and a threat. And in times like this, Christians increasingly feel like we are losing power because we are, losing safety because we might be, losing acceptance because, yeah, we are as well. And, and there are probably many young families here today wondering what your children will grow up to believe. Will the God of the Christian Bible feel like a loving father or will he feel like a maniacal relic of a twisted past? I don't know. Living in a time like this can make the kingdom and the church of Jesus seem like a fortress that needs high walls to protect it. And I want to recognize that, but I also want to invite you into the message of Psalm 67 first by hearing the words of Jesus. They sound a little different. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. 
It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. That doesn't sound like a city with a high wall keeping everybody out, does it? It's teeny tiny seed becomes a huge tree and the birds come and nest in its branches for protection and blessing. Let me invite you into the message of Psalm 67 with the words of God to Abraham. Go from your land, your relatives, your father's house, to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Again, this is not a city with high walls keeping everybody out for safety. Abraham was blessed with the promise from God, eventually fulfilled in Christ. And the blessing says, the peoples on earth, all the peoples on earth, will be blessed through you. So Psalm 67 is good news for us in a time that we live in because it tells us the story of redemption in the form of a prayer. Psalm 67 asks God to restore the world to its original design through the promise to reverse the curse of sin through Eve's offspring and through God's promise to bless every nation through Abraham. So here's our outline for today. It has four points. Number one, we need God's blessing. Number two, God blesses his elect to bless the nations. Number three, God blesses the elect to redeem the earth. And finally, God redeems for his glory. So let's walk through that. We need God's blessing. Where do we see that? Well, we see it in verse one. What does the psalmist say? He says, May God be gracious to us and bless us. May he make his face shine upon us. So this verse would be easy to skip over, but it's a good idea that we don't. It's worth lingering over for a while. Um, if you've spent some time in the Old Testament, this may sound familiar to us. There's one of, one of the most well-known blessings in the Bible comes from the book of Numbers and it just asks God to bless us and make his face shine upon us. But we should notice the request. The psalmist requests grace and blessing from God. And this is a common thing, right? How many of us pray to God for something other than grace and a blessing? Are any of us praying for God to give us a hard time? Probably not. But what does the psalmist mean when he asks God for grace? What does the psalmist mean when he asks God for blessing? Does he mean he wants comfort? Does he mean he wants wealth, health, success? He probably does want all these things. And man, if you want these things, God is the right person to ask. He's the only one really in control of these things. But is that the purpose of asking for grace and blessing? Is that what he means? Well, luckily, he tells us what he means within verse 1. He says, may he make his face to shine upon us. The psalmist begins this psalm by asking for blessing, by asking for grace. 
and by defining both by knowing God. God, shine your face upon us. This is the meaning of blessing to the heart of God's people. So the blessing God, uh, the psalmist wants from God is ultimately God himself, not his gifts, but God's face. Not what we can, he can get from God, but God himself. And I wonder is, if this is how we pray to God. Do, do we pray to him that we would get him? Or do we more often pray to him that we would get from him? I wonder. If you're like me, it's probably the second one more often than the first one. So this psalm becomes instructive right off the bat. And next we should ask ourselves, what does he mean by us? What's this word us mean? You're like, come on, dude, I've been speaking English for a really long time now. I know what us means. Well, what does the psalmist mean though, okay? So to take this prayer as an instructive prayer, as we just have, is certainly a good thing to do. But is that the main point? Is that, is that why he writes these words here? What does he mean when he says the words us? In, in other words, is the us us? Is the us you and me ultimately in the psalmist's mind? Did the author mean bless everyone and make your face shine on everyone? And I think two things are evident here in this psalm. One is that the author does desire creation in general to be blessed by knowing God. He does desire that. But the other one is that the author's use of us is more particular than we may initially think, especially if we're new to the Bible, which is great. Being new to the Bible is fantastic. Um, but it's probably, it's more particular than we might think. Because when the psalmist says us, what he means is Israel. The psalmist is saying this. He's saying, be gracious to Israel. Bless Israel. Make your face shine on Israel. And so what we see there is that the psalmist is not actually praying out of wishful thinking. God, I wish you would bless me. God, I wish you would show grace to me. The psalmist instead is praying that the promises that God has already made would come to pass. God promised to bless Israel when God chose Abraham one man out of all the earth. He chose Abraham to be the father of his people. And this sets the stage for the entire rest of the psalm. This is the shape of the entire psalm, is this promise that God gave to Abraham. For us to hear this song rightly, and, and psalms are songs. We're, we're in a series on the psalms right now. It's, it's just the hymn book for the Jews. That's what the Psalms are. So, so it's like our worship songs with the authority of thus saith the Lord. That, that's what they are. Um, for us to hear this song rightly, we need to know what that promise means for us. When the psalmist asks God to bless us, what he means is bring about the promise you spoke to our father Abraham. That's what he means when he says that. Bless us. Make your face shine upon us. He means Bring about your promise, the one you spoke to our father Abraham. And then he pauses to let us digest the request that he's made and to make that request ourselves. Remember, this is a hymn book meant to be sung in synagogue. When he says Selah, that, that is a pause. It's, thought, it's probably an instrumental 
that they would do. And, and so it's an opportunity for us to reflect on what was just said. He pauses to let us re- digest the request that he made to bless the world according to the promise of their father Abraham and to make that request ourselves. And then he moves, in, he moves along, and um, this brings us to our second point. God blesses his elect to bless the nations. God blesses his elect to bless the nations. So after the psalmist says Selah, he unfolds the purpose of his request. It, it, it's not just a request put out there in the ether because it's, because it's a great request. He has a purpose for it, and he, and he doesn't leave us wondering what that purpose is. He, he tells us why he made this request in verse 2. He starts verse 2 with, so that. Make your face shine upon us. Why? So that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Again, not so that we may be comfortable, not so that we may be rich, not so that we may be successful, so that your way may be known among the nations. So God's promise to Abraham was not simply that he would bless Abraham's children. Instead, he promised Abraham that he would make his descendants a people. And that through these people, the whole earth would be blessed. One man, his descendants would become a people. Through these people, the whole earth would be blessed. And so the psalmist knows that the trajectory of God's blessing is to go outward. And if he knows the promise, he cannot simply ask to be blessed personally so that he can be successful and maximize his own life. If this is how we interact with God, we are missing the whole point of the story of the Bible. The promise of God to Abraham was to bring blessing to Abraham, which would bring blessing to Abraham's descendants, who would go on to bring blessing of God to all the nations. It's a blessing which starts particular and goes out. And the thing that's going out is the glory of God. So what he says is, show your face to the people so your people can show your face to the world. That's his request here. That's what he's asking God for. And I wonder if we need to be recalibrated to this trajectory of God's blessing. We can get so focused on protecting our rights as Christians or at trying to fight the cultural tide the way it's moving, that we can begin to insulate ourselves from the world that our God intends to bless through us. We can build walls ourselves because we feel unsafe. What did God make us to do? To bless the world through his glory. And so there's, we, we should know that there's no such thing as a native Christian. None of us are born as Christians, are we? Every one of us is an immigrant in God's kingdom. God adopted us. And so we do need to protect the church from heresy, from things which are destructive, from wolves. But we do not need to treat our neighbors as threats or enemies. The gospel is going out. And so whenever the thing that we're calling gospel starts to turn back around, go back inward, we have to start asking if that thing is really the gospel or maybe we're believing something else. God doesn't bless his people to make them great. 
even though he often does make them great. That's not the point. God doesn't bless his people to make them great. God blesses his people so they will turn around and bless the world. That's the trajectory of God's blessing, and that's the purpose of God's blessing. On the other hand, we can get so focused on the fact that there's no type of person beyond God's grace that we forget that all people need to be converted. None of us is born a Christian, and so all of us need to be converted, okay? There's no such thing as a Christian who has not repented. Every one of us who lives with Christ has also died with him. And so we need to appreciate how scandalous this fact is, especially in our individualistic and pluralistic culture. We hold in our culture individualism and individual expression as our ultimate value. And it's, it's so in the air we breathe that some of us don't even realize it. We hold individual expression as ultimate in our culture, and we also increasingly lead into what's known as multiculturalism, which takes with it the belief that in order to appreciate diverse peoples, we cannot ask them to change. Now, I don't want to throw out the baby of multiculturalism with the bathwater. There's a lot of good stuff in there. But we need to recognize that this belief, that in order to appreciate diverse peoples, we cannot ask them to change, is antithetical to the gospel. This is different than the gospel. The gospel must convert us. It must change us, or it's not the gospel. So on the one hand, the gospel comes to every individual, and it says this, you are made in the image of God with wonderful and unique things to share. I can learn things about God from meeting someone who's different from me, whether they know anything about God or not. When I miss that, I'm missing something huge. But on the other hand, the gospel comes to every individual and says, you are dead in sin and will remain dead in sin unless you change. And that change has to be fundamental. See, the gospel says these same two things to cultures, nations, traditions. It says both of these things. We should be able to look at any culture and see God in there in ways that we cannot see God in our own culture. And we should be able to look at any culture and say, there's some idols there that gotta die. There's some golden cows that need to get melted down. Who knows what you do with a golden cow, but get rid of it, okay? And you know the thing, the thing is that for over 200 years now, America has been so steeped in the, nation, in the language of Christianity that sometimes we forget that we have a culture. I love our country. I love being an American. Megan and I lived abroad for a year and a half, and it was wonderful. And when we came back, we learned more about how wonderful our own culture, our own country was, because we appreciated it because of the distance. But I think sometimes because we're so steeped in the language of Christianity, we forget that we have a culture and that our culture is not synonymous with Christian culture. It comes with so much good, and it comes with so much error. We need to appreciate how offensive this is to the culture that we live in, this idea that people need to change. 
we also need to appreciate that this is inherent to the good news of the gospel, that people need to change. The good news is that God can change me from the heart, inside out, by the power of his spirit, based on the merits of what Christ has done for me. If any of you is here and struggles with shame, struggles with addiction, struggles just with knowing that you are not who you wish you were, we need to know that it's good news that God not only calls us to change, but enables it fundamentally by changing us at the heart level. God gives us what we need. And so we do need to go out in love to our world, knowing that we are more like them than we are different from them. But it's not evangelism unless it calls for a change in belief, a change in heart, and a change in life. So the truth is that if, if we are hearing the gospel rightly, it's going to scare the culture warriors on the right. It's going to sound like a threat. And it's going to offend the culture warriors on the left. It's going to do both. And the truth is that probably both of us, all of us, receive both of those when we hear it rightly. We feel scared by the threat and we feel offended by the call to change. When the gospel goes out to all peoples, we find that it's both good news and offensive, no matter what culture you go to. And the gospel is going out from God's people to call all peoples to Yahweh. And so the psalmist wants the face of his God to shine on Israel. That's his request. God, make your face shine on Israel so that all the nations can know God. But he doesn't simply want the facts about God to go out into the world. Listen to what he says next in verse 3. He says, let the peoples praise you, God. Let all the peoples praise you. So we'll, we'll do a little interruption here because, um, first of all, we got to know, what, what is, what's peoples? What are we talking about here? Does, does the psalmist have bad grammar? It's people is already plural, right? What's he talking about? Um, peoples simply means this. It simply means nations in the unique way that the Bible defines nations. And so a people is a population that is sociolinguistically distinct. Like, sociolinguistically, you lost me at that word. Um, it doesn't, it's not necessarily geographical, okay? That's not what nations generally are. That's not what peoples means in the Bible. But this is the most common way that peoples are grouped. What it is, is people who have a shared history, a shared culture, shared traditions, and a shared language constitute a people. And so Abraham began as an individual, and his descendants proliferated enough that they became a people, a nation, the Jewish nation who spoke Hebrew. Okay? Um, what's cool about this is that in the world that we live in today, it's common for our physical neighbors to actually belong to another people. And so when we think about the Great Commission, man, it needs to go out geographically. We need missionaries to get out there and find the people who aren't anywhere near people who know the gospel. But, it, but it's cool that the desire of this psalm becomes highly relevant to all of us and not just to international missionaries because a nation, a member of another nation can be next door. Isn't that cool? I think it's cool. 
So now that we know what a people is, let's go ahead and get more into verse three. Why is verse three here? It's here because the psalmist wants everyone to know who God is and to worship him with everything. The psalmist wants people to know who God is and he wants them to worship God with everything. Remember, we said he doesn't just want the people to know the facts about God. He wants more than that. He wants them to worship God with everything. And so it's no mistake that the same person who starts this psalm by asking for more of God in Israel and then asks for more of God everywhere is the same one who says this, let the peoples praise you, God. And then he repeats it, let all the peoples praise you. All the peoples. It, this, this is also, you know, it sets our expectation um, in a different way. He, he doesn't say everyone. Um, for some reason, by God's mystery, not everyone's going to come to know God. And we shouldn't be startled by that because that's the way it's going to be. And so we shouldn't think that God didn't deliver on his promise. But what we should know is that all the peoples, all the peoples have Christians in them waiting to be found. This psalmist knows that you can't be blessed without knowing God, and you can't know God without praising him. So again, if we think we know God, but our hearts don't praise him and worship him and lift him up and love him more than anything, I'm not going to say we don't know God. That's not fair. We're all, we're all going from glory to glory, slowly, slowly, slowly. But there's a gap there. And there's a type of knowledge that needs to be filled in. Knowing God rightly, knowing God truly leads to praising him, knowing his glory and loving his glory. He loves the glory of God, the psalmist. He wants to see it going everywhere. And so he prays to God, let the nations praise you. And furthermore, he knows that a God who is worthy of praise is also worthy of delight. Look at verse four. He says, let the nations rejoice and shout for joy. For you judge the peoples with fairness, and you lead the nations on the earth, Selah. And do you ever think about that? That God is not a bummer. Did that ever strike anybody as, as a reality? God is not a bummer, okay? Um, if you grew up in a really moralistic tradition where most of your interactions with God were all these things he didn't want you to do, Listen, there are a bunch of things we do that God doesn't want us to do. I'm not going to say that's wrong. But if that's the only thing that you ever knew about God, you may get this impression that God is looking for performance out of me. God is looking for me to be different than who I am. He doesn't like me that much. And he's ultimately, you know, he's right, but it kind of sucks. He's kind of a bummer. God is not a bummer, okay? Again, to use theological terms, God is not a bummer. But at the same time, I want to recognize something about all of us, okay? I want to recognize that engaging with God in the ways that he's offered himself can be really painful, and it can be especially painful in our age. The amount of entertainment and dopamine available to each of us, I mean, we're all somewhat, to some degree, addicted to information and entertainment. It's just a fact. And so, if reading your Bible, if praying, if listening to this sermon, it has something to do with the speaker, but it's also just listening to sermons in general, or if singing worship songs, if they're not immediately enjoyable to you, 
If it's not something that's just like, wow, this is like a refreshing drink of water on a hot day right away. I want you to know that that doesn't mean that you can't rejoice in God. That doesn't mean that this whole thing is broken, okay? I don't want you to hear that this joy in Yahweh is not for you just because the ways he's made it accessible are challenging. It is for you. And I want you to know that knowing God leads to rejoicing, but there, there's a lot of shaping and a lot of pruning on the way to rejoicing for all of us. You know, some of us may also be taken aback in this verse by one of the reasons the nations are rejoicing. Anybody notice that judgment was part of it? It's kind of weird. Let the nations rejoice and shout for joy, for you judge the peoples. What the heck? We don't like judgment, right? Get off my back, dude. So first we got to notice that God is judging the nations with fairness. So you can't understand this unless you know that God is judging the nations with fairness. Now, Oscar made a great joke about lawyers. Um, It won't be my first time contradicting him, and if he were up here, it wouldn't be his first time contradicting me. But while that was a hilarious joke, and I think lawyers have told the best lawyer jokes I've ever heard, fairness, rightness, law, this is all in God's wheelhouse, okay? Um, So if you're a lawyer, you know, we'll still make fun of you, but you've got a legitimate role in this world, okay? So, but we got to notice, God is judging the nations with fairness. Think about this. How many protests or riots or wars could have been avoided through leaders who just judged fairly instead of unfairly? Certainly not all of them, but some of them for sure, right? How much unfairness, injustice had just led to these drastic and terrible outcomes? It's a good thing that God judges fairly, God is a fair judge, and one day he's going to come to the earth to mete out fair judgment over all the earth. And if you've ever hated hearing someone in authority say, life isn't fair, well, you're going to be happy to hear that one day it will be fair. One day life is going to be fair because God will judge the peoples with fairness, and he's going to lead the nations on earth. Second, we should notice that the source of so much of our unhappiness in this life is sin and crookedness in the world. And it's not just from leaders that this comes. It's from everyone. Everyone is sinful and everyone is unfair. And it hits us in ways that hurt, doesn't it? The unfairness in the world. And so the psalmist wants all the nations to know the joy of having God as their king and being rid of all injustice. God is going to put down the oppressors and rise up justice for everybody. So we need to know that through the going out of the gospel to the ends of the earth, someday all injustice is going to be done away with. The world will be fair. But there's another word we have to deal with, and it's the word I chose for my outline, which is elect. So this point, what did I call this point? Anybody remember? I got to look at my notes. It's behind me? I'm looking at my notes still. (laughs) So God blesses his elect to bless the nations. Okay, we got to deal with why did I choose that word? It's not here, but I think it is. 
okay? And I think it helps us understand the continuum between the us being Israel and how we receive this today. I didn't choose to say God blesses Israel to bless the nations. Why not? Because elect is a broader word in some senses and is more specific in other senses. So God does not bless this whole world today by blessing a nation in the present-day Middle East. But God has blessed all the nations through Israel by bringing the Messiah through Israel as a man named Jesus. That was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that he would bless all nations through his people. It's from Jesus who came from Israel. God blesses people with the good news of the gospel. So there are no racial, ethnic, cultural, linguistic, political, or family boundaries that define who can or who cannot be brought into God's family by receiving the good news of the gospel. Anyone is welcome. So the good news of the gospel does not depend on the welfare of any nation, state, or people group. It depends on whether or not Jesus lived a holy life, whether or not Jesus died the sinner's death, and whether or not Jesus overcame death by rising to the grave and then ascended to the Father to live and pray for his people. That is what the good news of the gospel depends on. And so I chose the word elect because it's the word the Bible uses and because the elect are those who believe the good news of the gospel. That's how the Bible defines the word elect, those who believe the good news of the gospel. And in the Old Covenant, God blessed the earth by revealing himself more and more to and through Israel and by preserving the nation of Israel politically so that the Savior that the whole world needed could come through that nation and bless us, fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham. In this sense, Israel was the elect of the Old Covenant. They were the people God had chosen. They were the people God spoke through. And they were the people God preserved to bring the promised Savior. But in the New Covenant, God blesses the nation in this way, by spreading the good news of his finished work so that individuals from every people group can hear and believe and be saved. This is our only hope. Israel is so important, but Israel will always be important because... The promises that God made to Israel were fulfilled through Christ and are being fulfilled today in the church. So Israel could never be replaced, will never be replaced, but the position of the nation of Israel has been fulfilled. And the position of God's elect remains in the church of Christ in all the nations. The promise is going out. If you know this good news and you've staked your hope for this life and your hope for the life after it, do you know that God has blessed you in order to bless the nations? Believing this truth is uncomfortable because it, believe, it, it brings us into proximity with those whom we find threatening. It makes us share a message in which Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It makes us both more inviting and more exclusive than we would be if we didn't believe the gospel. But this is why God has blessed us. This is why. He blessed us for this reason. The purpose of God in all of history is to bring his salvation, his glory, and his joy to all the nations. 
through the gospel. Which brings us to our third point. God blesses the elect to redeem the earth. So we heard God's design for humanity in our reading of the law today. God made man to make the earth flourish and to spread it out in order to bless. And we hear an echo of that in verse 6. It says this, The earth has produced its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. And so when God made the earth, he made it to produce and to bless. And even though the ground became cursed through sin and work became hard and less fruitful, this design never went away. We still live by what the earth produces, don't we? And so in God's initial design, this work of cultivating the land was meant to be a blessing to humanity and a blessing to the land. And both mankind and the earth would benefit by Adam and Eve cultivating it. And we're told that creation groans for the revealing of the sons of God so that it can return to this blessed state. That's what I mean when I say God blesses the elect to redeem the earth. We're told in in Romans 8 that creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because it's under the curse of sin brought by men to it. It's groaning and waiting for the sons of God to be revealed so it can return to its blessed state again. And so we're not only hoping in God for our personal redemption, we also look forward to the redemption of the whole earth. In fact, the earth is depending on our redemption so that it can be free from the bondage of sin that we brought to it. And so anytime we enjoy a good meal, we should remember that God made the earth with this incredible potential to bless and that we're benefiting from it, and that we have a responsibility back to the land to take care of it, to bless it as its stewards. We should also remember to share things like meals with others because God made humans for the purpose of spreading out and blessing. We should also remember that when Jesus talked about the harvest, he was talking about the elect. So this is literally true. Um, You know, some sources tell us that Psalm 67 in the Old Covenant was often sung at harvest time. So we should take it to be literally true, and we should apply it literally when it says the earth has produced its harvest. But this is a both-and fulfillment. We should remember that Jesus talked about the harvest as being God's elect. It's not just crops that spread out all over the place. It's God's people, too. He's hidden them in every corner of the earth. But we have to remember this. Paul told us this in Romans. He said, how then can they call on him they've not believed in? And how can they believe in anyone without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so when we think about the earth producing its harvest, what we're looking at and what we're hoping for ultimately is the full gathering of God's people hidden throughout the earth, found through the proclamation of the gospel, which is made in the hope that this psalm gives us. Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples praise you, God. Let the peoples praise you. This is our hope as we preach the gospel. God built, God's built our speaking of the good news into his plan to redeem the earth and the harvest is waiting for us. 
It's waiting for us. It's there. So this brings us to our final point, which is that God redeems for his glory. That's the purpose of redemption. God redeems for his glory. The psalmist is reminding the congregation of the certainty of God's promise and the certainty of God's victory. Look at what he says in verse 7 here. He says, God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear him. And so those who are in Christ today can say with just as much certainty as the psalmist did so many years ago that God will bless us. He will. He will bless us. Ultimately, what God will bless us with is a perfect fear of him. You've probably heard Proverbs 9, verse 10. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We should also take heart that those who never learn to love God will fear and submit to his good rule one day. So knowing God and fearing God are one and the same. Knowing God and fearing God are one and the same. And today the psalmist is telling us that knowing God, worshiping God, and shouting for joy in God are also all the same. They go together. If you have only one of those things, something is broken about the way that we have it. Again, I'm not going to say we don't have it, but something's broken. The, other, the others have to come together with it. Knowing God, praising God, shouting for joy in God. They all come together. I wonder if we really know that. Do we hope in God because we love and fear him? Or do we hope in him because he's a means to some other end? He makes me a better person. He takes care of my finances. He blesses me with health. He gives me a wonderful family. Do we hope in God because we love him and fear him? Or do we hope in him because he's a means to some other end? Man, we got to depend on him for everything we need. But at the top of that list, at the top of that list, is that he will bring us to a pleasurable interaction with his glory. His fear is going to reach the ends of the earth. But how is it going to reach us? Will it be a pleasurable interaction with fearing him and knowing his glory? That is what we need to hope in him for. God has promised, and what God has promised is this, he will make his glory known to the ends of the earth. And if we're in Christ, that is good for us. If we're in Christ, all the sin that we've committed all the sin that dwells in our hearts, all the things that we know about ourselves but would never tell someone, all of the things that are true about us but we haven't had the courage to even admit to ourselves, Jesus stands between us and the holiness of God. And he gives us union, joyful union once again with God. This is what we wait for and this is what we hope for. Our God is a God of glory and grace and joy, and they flow ever outward. They're not meant to be guarded and held. They flow ever outward. And Psalm 67 has told us the story 
that even though sin has come into the world, turning our joys in on themselves, God remains committed to pouring his blessing out onto the world and returning the world to its original design of perfection. But it is happening like a mustard seed that becomes a tree. It starts small. It started with Abraham, one guy who couldn't have kids. God said, you're going to have so many, they're going to become a people, and they're going to bless all peoples. It starts like a mustard seed. It's so small. And it goes out and it blesses the world. And where it spreads, it blesses. So God chose a particular person named Abraham. He multiplied him into a people. This people produced a Messiah named Jesus. This Messiah didn't love just one people, but died for his elect among all peoples. And the message of this Messiah continues to spread throughout the earth until the full number of names written in the book of life has been saved. And one day, the earth itself will be freed from the curse of sin. And with all of this in mind, would you join with all the saints by placing your hope in Jesus, not to give you a better life, not to take away your struggles, not to make you a better person, but to make the nations shout for joy in the glory of the Father in Jesus Christ. I hope you will. We got four ways that we can lean into this this week. Four ways that you can do this this week. I hope you think of more. I'm not saying there are only four ways, okay? Here are four ways, though. You can pray for your neighbors. Some of God's people could be hidden there, and we just don't know yet. Pray for your neighbors. Appreciate your neighbors. God has kept his glory in every person and in every culture. And we're so bent to not appreciate people different than us. Appreciate your neighbors. This is part of leaning into this good news. Pray for the nations. Pray for the nations. The good news of Jesus Christ is going out into all the nations to bless them. And the nations will rejoice and shout for joy. Finally, share the good news. This is the vehicle God has chosen to cause his blessing to go out into the world. So share the good news. Those are the four ways. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.